I mean, it's weird because fundamentally an integrated bracelet is a step down. The integrated bracelet watch is the Betamax of watches because it's forcing you down a path. It's not supported by anything else. It's kept in its own little thing. You can only buy stuff off of the brand. And interestingly, Rolex don't make an integrated bracelet sports watch. Am I correct? This week on a blog to watch weekly, you need to listen right to the very end or you'll miss out on the latest from Patek, chat about integrated bracelets, Mario Kart Turbion watches, strict NDAs, and new releases from Tag Heuer, Hublot, Timex, Tissot, Longines, and more, all while joined by Simon from Escapement24. Enjoy the show! Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. David is... I think he's in the watch equivalent of, like, a Bond villain lair. He's strapped to a table, having signed an NDA. I believe... I'm not even sure if if he signed an NDA, does that mean you're not allowed to say what brand he's even signed an NDA for? But anyway, he is in a place in Switzerland or on his way there, uh, strapped to a table with a laser pointing at him just in case he breaks his NDA discussing a certain brand and everything they've got in store for the next couple of years. So he is away there, which means we have Simon. Simon, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Hi, everyone. Good to be back on the show. Great stuff. And obviously, Ariel is here too. Ariel, how's it going? Good. As a lawyer, I'm a little bit concerned of your depiction of NDA agreements. I'm not sure if you understand what goes into these documents. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just different in Europe than in America. I mean, Bond always gets away. I mean, it's like one of these things. I mean, why does the bad guy always explain the plot? I don't remember anybody signing any agreements in any of the Bond films, just for reference. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. You must not reveal my plan to take over the world. Maybe that's just because, you know... It- Turns out it was a really ironclad NDA and we never found out about it. We're talking about a non-disclosure agreement and it is true that members of the Blog to Watch team are from time to time asked to receive information or give opinions early on. And as members of the press, they want to make sure that we don't talk about this before they're ready to disclose stuff. At first, I think that on a basic level, we receive news in advance. But I think more more recently, senior members of the team are asked for you know deeper opinions about products, about strategy. And that is what David is experiencing right now. He's, he's doing some focus testing. He's seeing some stuff that may or may not ever come out. We will have a real influence on things that people actually buy and see. And we have for years, but brands understandably don't want us going around saying like, do you know the crap they shared with us? Thank God no one's ever <laughs> going to see that. Are you sure that the truth is that he hasn't actually been sort of locked in some sort of cellar for three weeks for breaking an NDA? No sequestering. <laughs> I mean, yes, he is stuck in Zurich. There's that. But no... <laughs> No sequestering occurs during this period that I know of. Well, I I do actually also have a watch on my desk here, which is subject to a very harsh NDA. Uh, And I was surprised at just how harsh the NDA was. But yeah, more of that. Well, actually, there won't be any more of that later. There's just that there is a very, very interesting watch. I'll give you a clue. The only clue I can give you is somebody has already been on the show and spoken about the fact that this watch is due out soonish. Okay. Say nothing else. Say nothing else, Rick. You've got to go back 35 episodes and have a listen and see who we've had on as a guest, which may, who may have suggested that there might be a very, very important, possibly one of the most important watches they've ever done coming out this time of year. So they said it on the show. So I, I think it's okay to say, well, you know, it's that time of year. So I've got the watch here. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what everybody makes of it. But Richard's not at all excited about this watch. Just want to be clear. Excited is, yeah. <laughs> 
I'm not going to say any more because I'm sure that starts to wander into territory where it'll be me strapped to a, a steel workbench with a laser pointing at my nether regions. So let's just uh, leave it at that. You've just proved to me that NDAs are necessary. I thought that these gentlemen's <laughs> agreements were, you know, w- was going to be okay. But with someone says to yourself, Richard, now I understand that if I don't want to talk about something, I literally need yeah. you to sign that you understand. So thank you for letting me know that. What's the longest NDA you've ever signed, Ariel? Or is that subject to an NDA? It is, actually. That's the funny thing. I have NDAs that preclude me from talking about the fact that I even have an NDA with that company, which I don't even think that is enforceable under U.S. law for a variety of reasons, but they weren't written by U.S. lawyers. So I've signed signed some hilariously overarching NDAs. And you chuckle because practicality, of course, you know, trumps what the clauses sometimes are like they can say crazy things how are they going to force it what are they going to do about it but at the end of the day it shows that these brands are extremely protective and for a number of years finally sort of got under control but for a number of years there'd always be somebody leaking one of these things and you know a blog to watch that would agree to these embargoes would sit there and see some article come up you know, breaking an embargo, and there was no punishment. And that's the funny thing. Other than having people agree to the embargo, if the embargo's broken, there's very little that brands uh, can actually do about it outside of not giving that publication information advance. And that does happen, but it only lasts for like one or two times before someone complains and asks for another chance, and then they break another embargo. Sometimes it's innocent, and sometimes it's actually not. Yeah, I try and sign all my NDAs on a cruise ship if I can, so that I'm in international waters and nobody can uh, can actually come after you then. Um, but there was a quite a spectacular breaking. Well, it wasn't a break of an embargo really, um, but a leak, I guess, um, around watches and wonders with Tudor, because on their website, somebody on a forum a, a day or two before realized that if you downloaded the XML sitemap from the Tudor mm-hmm. website, uh, because it was built in WordPress, it gave you a page link for every single new product that was being released, even though the pages weren't live. And those page links contained the names to all of their new models. So people had all of the names, if nothing else. (laughs) Excellent. Well, we shall talk about some uh, stuff on the website. Now, this week's article to get everybody riled up, the one this week from Sean is about integrated bracelets particularly looking at the Zenith Defy, the one with the ladder bracelet, which I, I'm quite keen on, I quite like. But it got me thinking about the question about integrated bracelets, and a very simple one. Why do we like integrated bracelets? Is it nature or is it nurture? Are they actually genuinely good-looking, practical things? Or have we just been nurtured by the media, by Instagram, by the brands to think that the pinnacle of the sports watch is when it switches to an integrated bracelet. Thoughts, gentlemen? I have a lot to say on this, predictably, I guess. Oh, well, that's good, because it's a podcast and we've got an hour to fill. Oh, good. Let's be having you. I mean, first of all, that this is a controversy or whatever is, is, of course, kind of amusing. But yes, people do talk about this and they spend a lot of time thinking about it without really always knowing what it is or even talking about. Let's first sort of remind everyone that there's different types of watches out there. The style and the way that they're built 
relate to different types of you know historic reasons or current reasons. Something that is meant to be worn with a suit at work is fundamentally a very different thing that is meant to sort of go underwater and be a, an instrument. So even though they're all watches, there's a sort of enormous variety out there. And that variety is part of why we like the, the hobby. And so you have to sort of reject it. It's supposed to be this way or it's better that way. Maybe for you, maybe for a particular purpose. But I think that everyone on this show can easily agree that there is no best watch design out there, right? There's just different ones that work well for different circumstances. Now, I will say that a integrated bracelet works particularly well when your watch is not trying to serve a utilitarian purpose per se, but is trying to integrate a timepiece and a bracelet. As we know, watches serve the purpose as jewelry for men. We don't always like to say that. We don't always like to, you know, think that or believe that or use that terminology. But this idea of a fancy thing on a wrist that calls attention, that, you know, remarks about your status and taste, that's what jewelry is. It's an enhancer. It makes you look a little bit better. And you can combine what jewelry is and a timepiece is very well. And there's watches that do that quite effectively. And if you're going for that bracelet look, then that is best accomplished with the integrated bracelet. And a bracelet is a particular type of jewelry look that people like, completely distinctive than the watch head, so to say the case, with a strap or even a, a bracelet attached to it, which again, in your mind, just looks like something a little bit different, usually has a non-jewelry type of background. So it's, it's really just, what is it that makes sense for you? So we always call these things sports watches, but the reality is no one's ever worn jewelry on purpose while doing sports. And same thing with these bracelets. So they're sort of like sporty in terms of the look, masculine, meant to suggest activity, meant to suggest strength, but they're not really sport watches in the true sense of, of a watch that is designed to uh, be worn during an active activity, sports, adventuring, or something like that. So is it that we just like the idea that we quite like to wear bracelets, uh, but we feel we can't do that unless it also has a watch face on it? Yeah. There's a Friends episode, I recall, because fundamentally in my life, everything comes down to either a Friends or a West Wing reference. There's a Friends episode where two of the characters become bracelet buddies because they both own bracelets. Is that fundamentally what this is about? We just like having the jingly jangly of something shiny and we've excused ourselves by saying that this is the way we're going to do it. Well, isn't that why a lot of us actually wear watches? You know, look, I mean, there's been a few times where I've looked at my watch halfway through the day, realised that I've put it on without actually setting it and... You know, it, I mean, it plays havoc with trying to get to meetings on time. <laughs> but, you know, I think this is, certainly for me, and I, I don't know if you guys agree, watches really are, they're an acceptable form of men's jewellery. Yeah. And I often put a watch on my wrist because I like the feeling of having something on my wrist. And I, you get used to the, the feeling of, of wearing that kind of jewellery, I guess. And, you know, they look cool. Obviously, they play a great function. But, you know, I do think that there's probably a, a big part of the community, whether they would admit it or not, that really buy these things and wear them because it really is a, a piece of jewellery that we can, as males, we can accept. What I really love is if you put men and women in a room and you ask them to discuss their jewellery, they have such fundamentally different conversations about it, why they like it and things like that. Even though it's essentially the same kind of behaviour, I'm spending a lot of money on something that doesn't really have too much useful utility. The watch obviously is arguably way more useful than something that does nothing other than shine. But the sort of mental approach to 
why this makes sense to be Warren is so totally different. And I love the, the contrast because very infrequently will women talk about, well, this is what the history was and like what it was meant to do, or, you know, practically speaking in the materials. I think, I mean, it, it's not that one conversation is, you know, better or worse, but it's just very interesting that this is such a, a mentality shift. And it goes to what you're saying, Simon, where men have this hurdle of wearing jewelry because they associate it as a non-masculine behavior, but they're doing effectively the same thing, just using slightly different terminology to go about it. That's that's sort of the loophole, right? Yeah, and it kind of gives us an excuse, the fact that, you know, that's a utilitarian or it has a function to it. Seven years ago, a guy wore this while going into a cave. So of course I should wear it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the interesting thing there is also when it comes to used. Now, I don't wish to be like dividing everybody into here's the male opinion, here's the female opinion. But I'm fairly convinced that in a broad brush sense, most women who wear jewellery would rather it was brand new jewellery that they were the first wearer, whereas most people who wear watches are actually not that bothered if it's the right watch, if it's been worn by a dozen other people and they've bought it used. I think there is an interesting dynamic between, yes, it's all jewellery of a sort, but there's an acceptability for watches to be used and to be bashed and to have been have experienced something. People talk about, oh, I remember when I scratch the watch that way. I have a terrible memory. I can't remember anything, let alone associating a particular event with how I chipped the side of a watch or cracked a, a crystal. But there does seem to be an acceptability for used slightly. Di patina. You've never heard anyone talk about patinaed jewellery. Yeah, my diamond ring has got great patina. Look how it's <laughs> faded. You're right. You're right. Absolutely right. But what's funny is when, when you ask women, you probe, okay, so what's wrong with, you know, pre-owned jewellery? They never talk about the condition. It's always something like, well, what if the person wearing it had a bad time? It's some... It's something that a man would never really think about as being a problem. And it's actually fantastic news for the women that get over that hurdle because the best deals on the market are like literally used women's watches. Like you want a precious yeah. high-end used women's watch and you want a good 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 deal, go use. It's insane. I mean, it's just insane what the what the deals are. Compared to men, it's it's you're gonna have a vastly better deal. So if you are someone who's able to get over that and wants to wear some of those fantastic because guys, because like you said, we're okay with it. That means that there's high demand and we have to compete with one another. What I thought was really interesting about the article actually was, um, you know, and of course it, what it leads on to is this kind of return of the integrated bracelet and, you know, how it's become such a trend in recent years. And I was trying to think, you know, so what, which watch actually, I mean, we, we the article talks about um, the uh, Zenith and then the Royal Oak as being the watches that maybe started that trend initially, but then what actually brought it back into such focus in the last few years and I was thinking, actually, really, I think the, the Q Timex is probably the one for me that I think maybe sparked this trend off again. Um, I can't really think of many other integrated bracelet watches um, that were um, so accessible, let's say, before that one came about. I don't know what you guys think. I'm kind of perplexed by this because for me, these things never really come or go like integrated bracelets have always been there if you've known how to look it's just about the focus right there's there, there's so many watches available at any given moment but the collector community 
seems to choose to focus on this particular subset or this particular group. I've sort of always seen sort of an expanded look at it. I'm like, okay, it's like the eye of Sauron, like fo- Sauron <laughs> focusing on this area or that. Or like the whole world is there. Brands to a degree will respond. You know, you just had Bramont come out with their own integrated bracelet watch. I don't know that that ever would have happened if it didn't become sort of a trend. But at the end of the day, they're not doing it because there's some type of like deep desire from the community. The brands are doing it because they want to make money. And they're like, we don't know what to do next. Integrated bracelets. Let's do our version of that. And you see in the car company, everyone's like pickup truck. We got to have a version of that. You know, like four four passenger sedan. We got have, have to have a version of that. A two seater convertible. Let's have a version of that. And so there's sort of this peer pressure for everyone to have like their version. And of course, that's going to translate into the high end and the low end. So yes, there might be some new ones on the market, but I don't think there was ever a deficiency or there was the dark ages of no integrated bracelets. And when you wear the watches, I mean, it's not like there's that different of an experience you know like oh this this integrated bracelet wears so much more comfortably functionally speaking like there's really nothing there it's just become sort of like a word in in a time when people find it difficult to make choices they latch on to these sort of like buzzwords and again i don't know that there's actually anything new going on at least from my perspective i mean it's weird because fundamentally an integrated bracelet is a step down yeah because you're actually buying something that's got less flexibility than a watch that you can easily change it for any aftermarket it's like being i don't know it's like choosing betamax over vhs yeah the integrated bracelet watch is the betamax of watches because it's forcing you down a path it's not supported by anything else it's kept in its own little thing you can only buy stuff off of the brand or some very limited suppliers that may start to make stuff that somehow fits it and interestingly the one brand that now, I'm not an expert on every watch I've ever made, but Rolex don't make an integrated bracelet sports watch. Am I correct? Well, look, the Submariner has such narrow tolerances between the case and bracelet. It just, it basically looks like it is. I mean, we're almost splitting hairs at this point. Like, does it matter if it looks like it is or it actually is integrated? Like, I don't know. And I don't think anybody really cares. Oh, no, 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 no don't, don't say that. Don't say that. We know that people care. Well, they do. <laughs> they shouldn't. But it's like... It's a, it's an odd thing to have a deep discussion about. I mean, you know, there's you're right. You lose a bit of flexibility. I mean, the answer that I think anyone needs to hear is, you know what? Have both. Have some watches with integrated bracelets. Have others. Have a nice variety. But to sit there and like discuss which is better or worse or which is more desirable, it is a totally futile exercise. Yeah, the whole thing's a futile exercise. That's what luxury is. <laughs> no, there's meaning to it. Deep Should meaning. Just stop the podcast now. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. That was a show. <laughs> That's a Escort show this man out of the room quickly, quickly. He's losing faith in the luxury industry. Yeah, it is. I think it is interesting that Rolex don't do something which would be broad. I mean, yes, Rolex squeak the Rolex tolerances, but Rolex don't do an integrated steel sports watch. So there you and go. let's ponder why for the rest of time. <laughs> We're just going to have a moment silent reflection on why Rolex don't follow the trend. Probably just because they make so much money doing it their way. Anyway, let's get on with some more. Okay, a bit of last week's show this week. So first up, Jake, who does the social media at Blog to Watch, messaged me and pointed out that 
last was it last week's discussion about the Carrera and putting text on the side of the watch and I was like we were pondering as to what other brands do that Ariel you pointed out that Norcane put a little plaque on the side of the watch that says Norcane and Jake Handley messaged in that there is one other very well known big brand that does that and that's Invicta so that's probably why nobody else does it so thank you Jake always a leader out. in the community thank you Invicta <laughs> where Invicta go everybody will eventually never never follow and also following on from last week last week's discussion with rob from watch pro where we were celebrating that brian duffy the chief executive chairman whatever his particular role is high hegen as we'd say in scotland as he is scottish at brian duffy the high hegen of watches of switzerland looked like he'd written last week's budget in the uk because of what it did for VAT and tax and obviously he's a big shareholder so what it did for dividend payouts uh, that has all now been reversed in this country if anyone's internationally or locally has been paying attention to him so brian Duffy. Last week he was the winner of having a good week award. This week Brian Duffy is having an official bad week. So there you go. Uh, thanks to the fourth Chancellor of the Exchequer in four months. But uh, November is coming so we might have somebody entirely different by then. Well Brian Duffy's not the only one who's been really badly affected by all of the stuff that's been going on. We've actually been trying to buy a house in the last couple oh, of weeks. Uh, yeah, And uh, we had an offer accepted which last week's Prime Minister who may not be next week's Prime Minister um, <laughs> put a really large spoke in, in the wheel of and uh, yeah we now can't get the mortgage that we needed for that house Yes, yeah, so we're opening opening the GoFundMe for Simon. If you check out the show notes, if you would like to contribute to Simon's new house, all donations gratefully accepted. Nice review some watches. Okay, first up this week, article by Jake. This was a hands-on of the new Tag Heuer limited edition. Wait a minute, I need to take a breath here because it's got the longest intro uh, of this watch title. So, hands-on debut. The Tag Heuer unveils the limited edition Formula 1 times Mario Kart chronograph and tourbillon watches in collaboration with Nintendo. There's a mouthful for you. So, on the one hand, just why? And on the other hand, is this actually a the first great use of a tourbillon movement on a wristwatch. So I don't know if you've seen this, but basically it's got characters from Mario Kart attached to the uh, tourbillon all chasing each other around. It's pretty cool, but I don't understand what they were particularly smoking at Tag Heuer when they thought, let's do this, but it's fun. What's so, what's so weird about it? If the goal is to make a product that's desirable and will sell... We know that there's enough crossover. We know that there's a large enough group of people that grew up with Mario Kart to 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 want to do this. We know that it makes sense with the racing spirit of the brand. We know how popular Tag Heuer is in Japan. So I, I understand it's not to everyone's taste, but where is the craziness here? Because on paper, this actually makes a lot of sense. Okay, hold on. Have you just asked me where's the craziness in attaching three <laughs> Mario Kart characters <laughs> to a tourbillon on a watch? That's, you know, in the world of nuts, although, Ariel, we did have some communication through the week about another brand who shall be nameless, who sent out a press release that, you know, was more nuts than this. It's going to be defined as at least, you know, half a bag of peanuts. Look, you, there, there's these little pilot watches that have a little plane on the dial or something like that, and we're totally okay with it. But Talker. <laughs> yeah, but you put a little, you put a little, you know, racing figurine on a racing watch and it becomes weird. I mean, if it was a little car... 
you'd be like, okay, but that it's a video game car, it's suddenly not okay. I'm just trying to show that it actually does fit within the sort of framework of novelty racing watches. Look at Tissot making those watches with the bezel that looks like you know a, a disc brake and rotor and things like that. How is that more, more or less cheesy? And they sold a ton of those to the MotoGP audience. Fundamentally, this is a $25,000 version of that. Okay, let's look at the $100,000 plus watches, the million dollar <laughs> Jacob ones, the Astronomias, those little carved figurines uh, and stuff in there. Uh, I see what's going on here. This is you getting ready to go to your Jacob and Co. in Sicily. <laughs> you're just having, you're, get, you're getting into the zone of craziness. Right, okay, I understand. I'm, I understand that. It's okay, Ariel, you're accepted. You're loved here. It's okay. We accept that this is just a phase. You're having to gear yourself up for whatever craziness Jacob and Co. are going to show you for the 60th anniversary of The Godfather. It's going to be weird. It's going to be weird in Sicily. I'm going to admit it's going to be if weird. If I click my fingers, will you snap out of no, it? Sure. No, it's never. <laughs> is this a good watch, though? Yeah. Forget about the branding. You either like it or you don't. The Hoyer OTT Turbion movement is fantastic. It's very accurate. It's well made. It's nicely engineered. It's actually one of the better Turbions in the movement. It's not as popular because it doesn't have a lot of hand decoration or any hand decoration on it. You know, it, it started with a, a price point when originally released of something like 16,000 Swiss francs or something like that. It was under $20,000. And that was the point. It was supposed to be a affordable, very uh, high accuracy automatic chronograph tourbillon that Swiss made and and it, it does that very well and I think that it has yeah. actually embarrassed a lot of the competition because it's actually so accurate and well performing yeah I think until Orage came along it was noted as being in theory the cheapest Swiss branded tourbillon watch until their one came out a year or so ago so yeah I mean I've seen one not the Mario Kart one but I've seen one of the tourbillons in real life and they are very impressive watches to be sure I'm not sure I'd be buying the Mario Kart one but then I'm perfectly prepared to accept that this is not for me well let's let's talk about the psychology of rage right because I sort of (laughs) no no I I represent the like okay they could do it you represent the like oh my god how dare you explore that (laughs) what does it make you feel about the brand now you are not my therapist therapy day is a Monday this is a Tuesday. It's still basically Monday for me. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Just come and lie on this sofa. <laughs> the, the psychology of rage. I don't think it's rage. I think it's tiredness. I think it's... Ugh. On the one hand, you could view this as being original. Okay. So on the one hand, you think, yeah, this is original. And then the other hand, I'm thinking, this is so derivative. This is so... Let's just take something, find something from the pop culture of people who grew up in the 1990s or so, which means that now they are the senior director, the merchant banker, the senior lawyer, so can afford a 25 grand tourbillon watch. So let's find something from 90s pop culture that we can stick on a watch. And fundamentally, Tag is being led by a guy who 90s pop culture is when he was brought up. So it's kind of understandable that he's like, oh, this is funny. Yeah. For me, I think, look, I think you've got to, You've got to question Tag's strategy with this one, really, because, look, I mean, realistically, how many of these are they actually going to sell? Everyone. Everyone. Yeah, well, maybe everyone. But it feels to me that, you know, Tag, I mean, they're doing some fantastic watches, um, but they have a little bit of work still to do, I think, in the um, to get themselves into the place that they should be in, in the minds of the consumers in the community. And for me, I think that that's where they should be focusing rather than doing these kind of novelty pieces where they may sell 
very, very small numbers of them. So let me say my philosophy. I hear what you're saying, and you're basically saying, hey, Tag, this type of project doesn't work in my neighborhood. And you're right. You In the UK, this is the absolute opposite of the type of product that you want to see a brand or see from a brand like Tag Heuer. You see it as being a little bit more classic, you know, just, just a little bit more conservative, quote unquote, good taste. And you're like, what is this playful thing you're doing? We didn't think that you were a company that made you know high-end toys. Um, and the reality is that Tag Heuer is becoming actually quite like Seiko in the sense that they're publicizing uh, internationally watches that are really meant for very specific markets. And so we often get these emails from Seiko about all these random watches, and we're like, who wants to buy that? Well, the reality is that's really a Japanese marketing or just for some particular part of the world that grew up with that cartoon or something like that. And I guess because I've just sort of been around a lot, I, I recognize that even though it has no emotional value to me, to someone that grew up with that, was into it, like it's like perfect for them. Like they can't wait to buy it. And I know the fervor around video game culture, and I know how much memories people have associated with growing up around video games. If you grew up sort of from the late 70s uh, through the 90s, you grew up with video games. And it was just part of your life. And there were certain games you probably played. And so by associating a luxury, you know, essentially a, a theme product with a popular you know, entertainment franchise that people have positive memories with and they look at that watch and it makes them smile because they remember having fun at eight years old or something like that. That's enough. That's enough to get them to buy it sometimes. It just pushes them over the edge. Now, you're right. Tag Heuer, especially with a tourbillon, has to convince you prior to this watch that their tourbillon is cool. Right, they have to. Th this watch isn't going to get you excited about their tourbillon. But if you've already been reading about the Hoyer O2T, you know, tourbillon, and you you've just sort of been waiting for the right opportunity, this might be the one that sort of pushes you over the edge. And you you can't deny that there's enough people out there that may have had that type of childhood. And remember that the UK is always remarked by the Swiss as being one of the most conservative markets taste-wise. So what you're saying completely coincides with you know the the statistics uh, about the market and and just recognize that other markets that things you know they would just they work a little bit differently i think you make some really valid points you know i really can't disagree with that i i think for me i'd look at this and, and think as a twenty-five thousand dollar watch you know it is incredibly niche there's nothing wrong with doing niche products but i feel that if Tag want to move into that position where they gain a, great, a lot more credibility and respect from the community the wider community, let's say, then I think that for me, I don't think this should be their focus. I think there are uh, other areas where they should be investing their R&D budget and focusing on the, you know, five to ten thousand dollar market. The, the reality is that you as a consumer probably should have never even learned about this. That's impossible on the internet today to make everything clean and as, as sort of kosher, so to say, for tag these products should only be marketed within the markets that would probably buy them. So that, you know, the perception in UK is protected for what they want Tag Heuer to be, and the perception in Japan for what they want Tag Heuer to be is allowed to exist. And I think that the sort of desire to have these universal brands is a challenge. And this isn't just in the, in, in the watch industry. I actually think there's a lot to be said about brands having completely different personalities depending on what makes sense in particular markets. A hard thing to do in today's connected world, but actually quite yeah. wise when it was done in the past. So go and check out the Tag Heuer. Some great comment section there. Go join in the chat. Tell us whether you like it or whether you don't. 
And tell us who your favourite character was in Mario Kart. And if you want to, send us in your best. There is a... I, mean, I don't know if this has been timed, but is, there's a, I'm sure there's a Mario Kart movie coming out. Or a Mario movie. Where I want to say it's Chris Pratt playing Mario, but not doing it with a an Italian accent. So I don't get it. And then previously, I think Bob Hoskins was the last he was the last mario yep (laughs) which probably meant that mario had a cockney accent but there we go so go and check out the watches go and check out the films i'm sure they're on youtube somewhere the the trailer for the latest one brand that had a big week this week was bremen they released a slew of watches not quite sure why brands do this uh, this is maybe the Seiko model that uh, Bremen are following, but they released a slew of models. One in particular, which is getting most of the attention and relates to our previous conversation, is the Supernova, which is their version of an integrated sports watch. I would like to say I was one of the first people in my old guys at Scottish Watches to introduce the world to Orage within podcasting. But as I understand it, this watch is basically the Horage K1 movement done up by Bremer in their facility at the wing and then recased and with their own design. Ariel, you mentioned this as just being, oh, Bremer, well, we don't produce an integrated steel sports watch. Let's do that because fundamentally we want to make money. So is this going to be a moneymaker for Bremen? I don't know how long the legs of this trend really are. I mean, these watches take several years to develop, so we're not really sure when Bremont originally decided to go ahead and start making a watch like this. I'm guessing it was minimum of three years ago, uh, maybe even longer. It is very compelling to, to want one because your consumers go to you and they'll be like, hey, I like the Royal Oak. Do you have anything like that? Now, these aren't necessarily watch lovers, but these are people that like the Bremont brand, but also have this idea in their mind of what they want in a watch to wear, right? And so a brand has to do two things. You have to sell someone on the product and the brand. Two different things. And sometimes if you just get one, like you just sell them on the brand, then consumers are like, I really love you guys, but I really want to wear something like this. If you make something like this, I'll get one of your watches. And hearing that from enough people could be enough inspiration for a brand to be like, okay, we're going to have to do it as well. I haven't worn one of these. One of these is going to be sent over relatively soon. So I'll I'll get to check it out and and see what it's like. I know that this is the movement from uh, Horage, I believe, uh, the module done with them. So it's a nice watch. You know, the the, the dials maybe are not my favorite. They're sort of like, tool tool watch style dials in a case that doesn't say tool watch it says more cocktail party and i actually like the case i just don't really see a a marriage of these particular dial styles Uh, i i could be proven wrong when i wear it but i want to see a dial that maybe doesn't have arabic numerals has a little bit more symmetry they have one with the markers on it but i feel like they could have gone a little bit more creative i feel like there's something they could do they experimented with an interesting bezel design which is sort of what um, what i call like shield style or it combines sort of like a cushion and a circle they're Used to be some Roger Dubuis watches, sort of this shape. It's an it's a, it's a nice shape. I'm not sure how emphasized it is when we see these watches in the flesh. So, I think Bremont, the success is in the case and the bracelet together. We'll see what it what it's like. They can always change the dials moving forward. That's something that's not relatively hard to do. So, I I think that this is sort of a strange infant, but when it grows into a teenager, if it gets that far, I think this will be a pretty cool product. Well, look, I've never really been a, a big fan of Bremont. I have to say, I mean. It, when the models I've seen of theirs in the past, I've always felt have been quite iterative designs that 
almost you could have put lots of other brands on the dial and it could have been them. And they've never really stood out for me for that reason. And as a value proposition, I guess I've always felt that they didn't really quite cut it. I have to say, seeing this one, I think I'm sold on this. This really appeals to me. Visually, the aesthetic, I think, really works. Um, I'd pick up, you know, I certainly agree with a lot of the points that were, were made, Ariel, what you said about the dials. I think they've gone an interesting direction with this. I think they've taken the whole integrated bracelet idea and done something a little bit different with it in terms of how it works with the case design. I love the exhibition case back on this one. Um, I think that really, I mean, it's very zenith to me. I don't know what the finishing is going to be like on, on that movement, but uh, if it's a Horage movement, I would have thought that it would be pretty good. Will it succeed for them? I hope it does. And I hope actually that this is now the start of some more original design work from Bremont. I think that it would be great to see this be the start of a, of a new era in design for them. Um, so I'd be interested to see how this one does and, and also what comes next. I would expect this to be highly successful. I would expect that they will sell lots of them and I suspect this won't be the first iteration. They also have the Fury Pilots watch which has come out. I don't think it's anything particularly special. It's kind of a fairly standard looking Pilots type watch but there are a couple of articles on the website that it's worth checking out and again we'd be really interested in hearing everyone's opinion uh, about this watch. And I think the Fury is goes back to what I was saying about it's almost a design that largely passes me by because it looks so similar to so many other pilots watches yes, out there. Yes. And, you know, I think that I, I really want to see more originality from the brand. And I think that's what we're starting to see with the Supernova. But if you can avoid putting Mario characters on your watch, then that would be okay by me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. There was a watch released this week, the Hublot Big Bang eFIFA World Cup. Qatar 2022 watch and I don't so much want to talk about the watch it's a big bang smartwatch but it's more about the luxury world's involvement in areas of life that are politically sensitive now in Europe and in, I think probably in the UK in particular everything around the Qatar World Cup is quite controversial there's obviously been you know reports about what's been going on during the building of all the venues about some of the laws that exist in the country, etc., etc. So I just wanted to ask the question, what responsibility does the luxury world have? Because it's one of the few industries in the world, and we saw recently in a, a number of the watch brands pulling out of Russia, it is one of the one of the few areas in the world luxury that exists pretty much in every country in the world do these companies trade. So what responsibility does the luxury world have to engage with and respond to whatever political climate they're in, wherever it is they're selling. Any strong opinions on this, gents? You have an opinion on it. I think that's the that's the place to start. <laughs> yeah, I am torn because the, the argument on these things is always, you know, it's like when a sports team goes to a country where there's issues, which is fundamentally what's happening here. Football is going to the Middle East. It's never been there, never had it. Well, it's not, it's never been there. It's never had a World Cup there. So on the one hand, do you change a thing by getting involved in the thing? So, or do you change a thing by stepping back from it and speaking into it? And it's two very distinct strategies. It's like joining a political party to change it from within or standing by as a commentator to, you know, 
commentate on it. It's what we do. So as watch people, we could either go in to Pan or I and say, guys, get a grip. This is what you need to do. Or we can stand back and say, Pan or I, get a grip. This is what you need to do. Is it better to try and do these sort of things from the inside? Is it more successful? Is there a right and wrong answer? The answer is probably not. And the one thing we are not good at in the world today is nuance. When was the last time you had a nuanced conversation about anything? I mean, we've just had a conversation about cartoon characters on a tourbillon cage. It was hardly a nuanced conversation. I'm being Mr. Rage and Ariel's being Mr. Reasonable. So I suspect what will almost certainly be lacking from any conversation about this <laughs> is nuance. The ability to hold two opinions that are opposite, that on the one hand it's a good and a bad thing, and be able to deal mentally with the idea that everything is not black and white. I think probably on balance more is I think probably my feeling is on balance there is more benefit from in this particular instance the World Cup going to Qatar and then speaking into the issues because the reality is if the World Cup wasn't happening none of this would be being, co- be being covered in the media sure I think it's slightly different then when it comes to the actual engagement of luxury brands and whether they are prepared to speak into the message I mean we know there are a number of brands whenever it comes to a kind of gay pride week who will change their logos in the United States and Western Europe to have rainbow colours on them but that brand stays very much what it always was in the Middle East or in countries where where homosexuality is illegal. Should brands at least be consistent? I mean, look, you have an opinion on it. Brands Obviously, brands need to do something. Yes. They obviously need to do something. You're expecting that they do something. Consumers today expect brands to have some type of position. I, you know, there's a lot of reasons as to why that is. I, I, I understand you want to do business with companies that you feel that you share values with, even if you're not always sure how to define those values. But, you know, you, you, you want you want a good feeling where you spend your money. I, I understand that. I think that the whole point of traveling sports to begin with was an attempt to try to spread unity and shared goals and yeah. sort of healthy competition and stuff like that. And, and these types of issues have existed from the very beginning of the exportation. I imagine, you know, a long time ago when the Olympics started, like you know the original olympics yes to us it was sort of in the same part of the world but it was played it was played by people with all different types of backgrounds and cultures they might don't let those people in here you know what they do at home like i'm sure that happened uh, throughout history many times mm. um i think what's important is what is it that you do as a as an advertiser or sponsor when you're there do you do you kowtow to local demands just to sort of avoid being in the spotlight, even if it means you're duplicitous elsewhere? Or do you use the opportunity to really sort of shout what you what you care about because you have a new captive audience that, that may have never seen you before? Again, I really, I think it goes back to what it is that you do. But this sort of idea that, you know, certain parts of the world need to be, you know, uh, sequestered, I don't know that that's a good long-term solution. It certainly makes sense that sometimes a, a government is just so unruly, you just have to stop you know, participating with it and, and say, you know, we, we you're, you're like a bad child. We just can't work with you. But the idea that that these sort of commercial companies are just sort of not going to participate in things, you know, sort of wholesale because of some disagreements they have with certain rules and regulations in the municipality, I think that goes against the sort of exportation of cultures and values that we all agree is probably a good thing. And I think there are two separate points going on here, actually, um, that, you know, you've got firstly got the point of the, the bigger question, should the should FIFA be holding the World Cup? Should it be hosted in Qatar? And I think then you've got the second question of, should Hublot, as a major sponsor, be supporting it? And I think those are two very, very 
separate points. And, you know, look, from Hublot's point of view or any of those sponsors, you know, this is a major global event. I think that they would have to take the view, I'm sure their shareholders would take the view, that it's a great opportunity for them to promote the brand, to sell a lot more product in a part of the world where I'm sure they have a very big following. It's, um, I imagine that it plays quite a large chunk of market share for them. And so in terms of, you know, if you were sitting around the boardroom table in Hublot saying, shall we produce a watch that plays into and supports the FIFA World Cup in Qatar, I think it would be very, very difficult to say no. I think it's it's a, a enormous opportunity for them. And, you know, when you're looking at creating profit for shareholders, I think it'd be very hard to walk away from that. There isn't a right answer. There's just the ability to try and engage in sensible conversation with each other. And hopefully we have done a bit of that today. Well, let, let's let's talk about being at those events because we've been to certain events, these sporting events, racing events. And I think what's important is that when you go to the event, you are not, uh, you don't feel like you're in a place which is anything but, you know, it's not oppressive. It's an open environment. People are excited. There's a lot of shared values. It's very international being there. These particular places, at least the ones that I've been to, are very much the type of place you want to feel that that brand would want to support, right? It's a good environment. Maybe a few miles away or even down the street or outside is a different story. But usually those events are very consistent in terms of how good they are no matter you know where where they are in the world and again i'm sure there's exceptions and things here and there but let's not forget that you know the world cup when we see it is going to be the same world cup it's going to be that one that everybody wants and so you know Hublot could say okay yeah i mean i understand it's held here we couldn't control that we didn't choose it here but for most of the viewers of this event it's not going to be the stadium in the city it's going to be for the television audiences and all that stuff and they're getting a consistent experience that doesn't represent traditional qatari value think from my point of view whatever the issue is I think it's just about not presenting one face to a different audience. You know, we just had the conversation about the tag hire and how that was maybe designed for a very specific market, but that because of the way media works, everybody gets to see it. And so as conservative, reserved British people are like, we don't understand this. I think the opposite also has to apply. You shouldn't be showing one face to one audience and another face to another audience if you're a global company. I think perhaps that's where I would draw the line in terms of, yeah, that's really starting to, to cross over between being duplicitous. It's a moral balancing yeah, act absolutely. for every absolutely. time, every decision. Yeah. You have to have someone responsible at the company who's willing to make that calculation. And sometimes it's going to go in favor of let's do it. And other times it's going to go in favor of let's not do it. You just have to weigh it every single time. Exactly. Okie doke. Finally today, we'll try and squeeze this in. We have three chronographs that were reviewed on the site this week. The new Time XQ chronograph, the Tissot telemeter, and the Longines record heritage now, these are three chronographs at three different price points. The Q Timex comes in at around $200. The Tissot comes in at around $2,000. And the Longines comes in at around $3,000. So that's your uplift between those three brands. They are three chronographs. Quick fire question. Which one of those three represents best value? 
in your mind? Simon? Oh, you're putting me on the spot, but I think it's probably, for me, it's probably the Tissot. I think they're doing some great things with their heritage watches. It, the, look, the aesthetic on this one doesn't particularly appeal to me, but I certainly respect it. I can see what they're doing. I think um, it's you know a decent movement in that watch. I think it offers quite a lot of value. Clearly, if you were looking at it purely from a value point of view, of course, you'd have to say the Q-Timex. It's a couple of hundred dollars, and they're going to sell bucket loads of these. But I think for me, if I was going to pick um, and being completely objective to it, I'd, about it, I'd probably say the Tissot. Good, good. Ariel, your favourite, your choice. If money was no object and you just wanted one, which would be your go-to? I mean, the Longines is very pretty. The Tissot is a looker as well. The Q is a slightly different design. It obviously is classic, but not as classic as the Tissot that looks like it was from the 30s and the Longines, which looks like it's from not, not long after. But they're so pretty. You know the movements are good. That is something which has really never been a question with the Swatch Group brands. I mean, these are just very pretty watches. And Oftentimes, when it comes to a watch like this, you ask yourself, is it going to be useful to you next year, five years, 10 years, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, if you still have these in your collection, you'll easily find times to put them on. So I think that sort of timelessness and, and versatility just lend themselves well. And, you know, the sort of black with a little bit of gold, there's just so many instances where that would that would fit in, be classy, a little bit showy, but also very conservative. No one is going to accuse you of trying to show off with this watch. Uh, Simon, did you hear Ariel make a choice there? Because I think I missed it. I think he picked all three, didn't he? <laughs> Hence why I have so many watches. <laughs> True. Yeah, I think for me, if I could get the long jeans, look at the Tissot price. Uh, the long jeans is a very, very pretty watch. But fundamentally, I'm a Scotsman, so I'm going for the Time X. Actually, no. Fundamentally, I'm a Scotsman, so I would go for the Time XQ because it's the cheapest, but then I can't go for it because it's a Timex and I'm Scottish and you can Google that story. Anyway, so go check out those three articles. And I think the Tissot is the most commented on article in the past week. So go and check that out. That is us for this week. Ariel, you packing your machine gun into your violin case ready to travel? to Sicily? Yeah, I'm really worried about getting around, actually, because if you've ever been to that part of Italy or other parts of Italy, you know that if you're not a local and you know how to handle that type of driving experience, you shouldn't do it. And so I'm thinking, like, I'll have to walk a lot because, like, you know, there are certain parts of the world where you just certain things are a little bit harder. And so I'm, I was reading, for example, online where they're like, yes, don't plan on buying, you know, like, like, you know, train or, or bus tickets at the kiosk. They never work. So don't plan on buying. I'm like, great. Like, <laughs> can't wait for that type of infrastructure. Or like, watch out. Some beaches are very dirty and poorly maintained. I'm like, oh, great. It's, it's going to be insanity, but it's going to be a lot of history. And uh, everyone's just really excited to see what Jacob is going to do. I mean, the last watch they had was over a million dollars so when you have like that type of budget to play with i mean is is the watch going to have a machine gun in it i mean that's i think what everyone's expecting yeah, yeah. and uh so don't go for any long walks off any short piers is all i would say and whatever you do it doesn't matter what situation you get into in terms of your traveling never ever ask a local for directions okay if you are seen to be asking any locals and how have you been to italy lots i've seen people tourists who don't know what they're doing ask for directions and then you you basically you almost see people coming out of their houses to assist in the telling of the directions i've seen people cross roads to 
join the conversation about giving the tourist directions so don't ask for directions just look at a map that's what that's what your phone is for just go on google maps and figure it out that way but do enjoy your trip sounds so reassuring the locals are just exceptionally yeah, friendly the, local, oh, the locals will be great just so we expect a full watch movie review and a blog to watch what did you watch on the plane and what watches do you see because you must have time that's if you survive yes. the experience yeah, so actually actually we, if you could do us a favor and on the when you arrive in sicily could you just record onto your audio recorder then what you saw on the flight and then send it to us just in case we don't get the chance to speak again okay this good. is like some gonzo journalism <laughs> like okay good stuff we'll do it and Simon, what's coming on the channel for you this week? Um, so I've just finished shooting a video on the Studio Underdog watches, which has been a, a long time in the making. I've <laughs> for for quite a while, um, but um, I've got a bit of a queue happening now, and I will um, probably not be buying a house. But the thing is, uh, all the money you've saved for your deposit, you can now spend on watches. Every cloud. <laughs> Absolutely. Every, every cloud. cloud. Well, there... If you were a dust mite, you could live in a watch. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> yeah. So what, what was that film called where he shrinks? It's not big. That's honey. I, shrunk, honey, the I shrunk the kids. That's a bit of Rick Moranis for you. That's what you need. I, I, I think my wife was actually um, looking at my watch collection <laughs> recently and, and thinking, uh, yeah, maybe if we sold a lot of these, we might have a slightly larger yes, deposit. Yes, that's, that's that's when you need to be considering things. I'll, I'll not tell you what those things mm. are. We need to have a wa- we need to have a watch site where you put up your watch for barter, and you have to choose: do you want a car or a house or some type of thing like that? Like watches is currency for things that are not watches. I think that this <laughs> this could be a real thing. Uh, good stuff. So that's coming next week. A blog to watch barter site. Look out for it. So thank you, gents. We will speak all again soon. Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Okay. Oh, guess what just happened just now? What? Your Jacob and Co. trip's been cancelled. No, Patek Philippe just came out with the 5811. It looks exactly like the other one. Emergency, emergency, there's a klaxon gone. Just as we were pressing stop, a press release arrived in uh, from Patek, the new 5811-1G. In summary, (sighs) new boss, same as the old boss, nothing to see here. Goodbye. (laughs) No, tell us quickly about it, Ariel. Well, we knew it was coming and uh, it was only a matter of time. I think what's important is that the model that came out was not in steel. I think it's one of the gold ones. So it's a three hand. It's it's $69,785. Again, at a glance, doesn't look at all different in any way, shape or form. Uh, There are going to be some differences you know we just got this a moment ago we don't know exactly when a steel version is going to come out uh but it's going to be obviously uh, eventually i i think the question is is you know you know how quickly are these going to enter the market and are they going to do the same thing where they just trickle them they ha- they say that they have grown in size from 40 to 41 millimeters so that's cool this one has sort of a gradient blue dial. It it does have a stop seconds mechanism now. <laughs> so we're taking them. How, how, when did when were Patek founded? Uh, a while ago. Yeah. So it's only taken them a while to get this far. Yeah. <laughs> Hacking seconds. So, but apparently there's a new type of system that allows the, uh, the the lever system to be pulled out from the case side. So there's some type of new system there with the crown. Unclear exactly what that is, but there's some type of new system. So we'll, we'll see what that is. 
display case back. So it looks it looks quite nice. It is you know something we're going to have to see in person, which we'll do eventually. But it's a it, it's a, it's a pretty handsome watch um, if you're into this sort of thing because it looks exactly the, the same as the old one. And have they just launched this? I think they may have launched a couple other things today as well. Yeah, just... there was a few other watches as well. Um, this is sort of the main one to talk about. You know, they they came out with a new fifty seven twelve, and this is the calendar watch that has the moon face. So this is another Nautilus in uh, in rose gold. Uh, so there's there's a couple of variations here. Uh, there is an Aquanaut with sort of a rainbow a dial. This is a chronograph version of the Aquanaut. Uh, so that's going to be a cool one with precious stones. Obviously very niche, but, you know, fun to talk about. There's also a, a reference a 5373P. Uh, this is very sporty looking, but uh, I think P is platinum. Split second monopusher chronograph with a moon phase. This is sort of one of those you know complicated sport watches i don't know what sport you would do with it it has <laughs> it says it's for left-handers so it's a, it's a destro model i guess with the the crown and everything on the left side of the watch as opposed to the right side of the watch wonder who they got the idea from yeah exactly i mean that's just sort of hilarious <laughs> that they would do that so uh i i, I mean handsome watch nice you know, it, it, it it's it's lovely for re- for a relatively small audience, but you know, it's it, it'd be hard you'd be hard pressed to know that that's brand new from Patek Philippe. But this is um you know this is exciting. The most expensive one is uh, you know they're not even giving you the prices, but the most expensive ones are given the price for is two hundred and twelve thousand bucks, so that's quite up there. So there's nothing that they just released which is under. Uh, $63,000. Well, there you go. So knowing its audience. Uh, Great. Well, that's us. We'll get some more detailed coverage of these next week, no doubt. Yeah, the Destro 5373P is hysterical for a number of reasons, but uh, we will touch on that, no doubt. So there we go. This is definitely the end of the show. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.